hustle culture online is work 80 hours a week and nonstop high speed overload outwork everybody. And I'm more of the fact of, okay, what's the easiest way that I can make a lot of money so that I can do whatever I want with my time. And once you start making those decisions and getting that leverage and separate your time from your money, you can get very wealthy, not working very much. Welcome to the Action Academy Podcast. Stand back while I celebrate freedom. The show where we help you achieve financial independence with the mindsets, methods, and actionable steps from guests who've already earned their freedom. The flags of freedom fly. Choose to do what you want. What you want. With who you want. With who you want. When you want. When you want. With another episode today. Now, here's your host, Brian Lubin. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Action Academy podcast. This is your host, Brian Lubin. And on the other side of the microphone, we have your guest today, Nick Huber. Nick's a self-storage guy, and some of you may know him from Twitter, at Sweaty Startup, and also his blog under the same name. That is his brand. His whole ethos of his brand and his social media presence is essentially the idea that most entrepreneurs have it completely backwards, where everyone tries to innovate and do the brand new thing that's sexy, like an Elon Musk, like a Jeff Bezos. But the reality of the situation is people just need to roll their sleeves up and go and focus on these service-based businesses, take something that 20 people are doing, and just do it better than the other 20. And then that's an easier way to win at life and business. So that is his entire philosophy. And that's what he talks about in his brand. It's different service-based businesses, which is what he does. Nick and his buddy started a storage business in college over at UGA. He eventually sold that for seven figures in 2021 and then decided that he was going to go all in on building a self-storage portfolio. Now, today he has over 59 self-storage facilities and 1.7 million square feet of storage. Nick has raised and used over $100 million of investor capital to acquire this portfolio. And now this brings in six to seven figures of net operating income directly back to him and his partners. And he is murdering it in the self-storage game. So today we have a couple of different topics that we talk about. So I'll walk you guys through a timeline of this episode. So Nick is friends with two other podcast hosts that I admire, uh, Sam and Sean over at My First Million. And they hosted a meetup to where they had a bunch of high net worth individuals, including Mr. Beast, the YouTuber. And so all of them together were in this house, uh, masterminding, talking about business, talking about life. So we begin this episode talking about his takeaways from hanging out with Mr. Beast, Sam, Sean, and a bunch of ballers. Then we go into his thoughts on entrepreneurship at large, what people get right, what people get wrong. Then we go into his hiring practices and he shares his best practices for hiring virtual assistants. So I believe 80% of his team is completely virtual full-time and he's got them doing really high-level operations in his self-storage business, which is freaking awesome. Then we go into how he acquired self-storage as an asset class and start diving into some niche-specific topics. And then at the end, we finish with a macro outlook on the U.S. economy and what he's doing to position his portfolio and how he's viewing debt and terms a lot differently than he used to and all the different levers that he's pulling to make sure that he doesn't risk any money that he doesn't need to risk. So fantastic episode, uh, five stars from me. Hopefully it gets five stars from you over on Apple Podcasts and Spotify or wherever you're listening. If you're enjoying this content, would love it if you share this on your Instagram stories, on your Twitter, uh, shared it with a friend, greatly appreciate it. With that, Nick Huber. All right, Nick Huber, the biggest fan of sweat and startups that I've ever met. How are you doing, buddy? Brian, thanks for having me. Doing great, man. Glad to hear. 
Got two Georgia boys here on the podcast. Followed the Twitter account. Huge fan of that. You have had multiple tweet storms and threads and different topics that you talk about a lot that I want to bring up in the show today. But I want to start with going back to August. You had a meetup with Sam Parr, Sean, Mr. Beast, and a lot of high net worth individuals over in North Carolina. And you put out a newsletter about it with some of your top takeaways, including a text to your wife about some realizations that you had about mm-hmm. changes that you needed to make. I'd love to start there and then dive deep into that before we get into the business. Yeah, I've been blessed and in a unique situation to get access to a lot of really neat people. And as I meet more and more people, I think it's just so rare for a human being to be what I consider to balanced. And maybe it's because my interests are all over the place, but I've, I always thought that as a kid looking up to back then it was professional athletes or famous people, I always thought, man, they must really just have it together. They must be spectacular in all areas of life. They must be just on another level. And I think my rise, I don't feel like a uniquely brilliant or smart or outgoing or brilliant business mind by any means. I think it's just a testament to the fact that you don't really have to be spectacular to make really incredible things happen. A lot of it's luck. A lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. And then being a 10Xer in one area of life, which everybody at that camp was spectacular in one area or more. Very few of us were well-balanced and me included, right? I don't know. I just think business is part of it. But once you make money and once you get that part situated, you realize that you wake up in the same body next to the same woman in the same house with the same 12 hours before it gets dark as everybody else. And what you do with it and how you enjoy it is open-ended. So you had a few key points there that I want to dissect a little bit with you because I thought that they were very interesting. The first of which was Mr. Beast's obvious obsession with his one thing, with the YouTube channel. And then Mm -hmm. I noticed that was a commonality around the group. Like you said, it's like instead of being good at a lot of things, everybody was great at one thing. And I know for you, that's storage and these service-based businesses. Love to hear your perspective on that. And then maybe how you go about finding your one thing to be great at. I wouldn't, that's where I think from the outside looking in, you might be surprised to know that, okay, I don't, I never have worked more than 60 hours a week in my life. And most weeks I work 35 hours a week and I really enjoy exercising and I really enjoy pissing people off on the internet. And I really enjoy playing with my kids and I like going hiking and playing golf and these other things that everybody hustle culture is work 80 hours a week and nonstop high speed overload outwork everybody. And I'm more of the fact of, okay, what's the easiest way that I can make a lot of money so that I can do whatever I want with my time. And once you start making those decisions and getting that leverage and separate your time from your money, you can get very wealthy, not working very much. I was really surprised to see that among the group up there in North Carolina. I don't think the rich, famous, Successful entrepreneurs are that much different than the people who aren't. Yeah, it's just they're more consistent with it. And then they're better delegators at their time and high dollar productive activities. Yeah, people are like, Nick, what do you do when you wake up in the morning to kick so much ass? And I do the same thing everybody else does. I roll out of bed and get my phone and I lay in bed with my phone and I check it and scroll Twitter when I probably shouldn't. And then my kids start screaming and it's a mad dash to get my kids out of the house. I take them to the school and it's then I take a meeting and go about the day. Right? <laughs> you, I put my I put my pants on one leg at a time and I get after it, man. That's, that's what right. I do. Yeah. Dude, that's a perfect segue. I pulled up a picture from one of your blogs and I love that you put this. And then this actually segues perfectly into what we're talking about. So you have 40 employees currently. 
Is that correct? It's up to about 50, 50 to 50. Yeah. So I actually lost counts 50 to 52. Okay, cool. So this was, yeah, this was from a blog before. So mm -hmm. you put in here, mind blowing stuff. Can't believe how fast we've grown. And I'm the one writing this message, the struggles. I don't have a job at my company. Actually, I can't. If something is required of me, that means it'll soon be a bottleneck because I have a ton to worry about. Not mm -hmm. just a small task, but the small tasks 30 other people are doing. So I have to delegate everything. I love that. And that's such a huge struggle for people, especially as they're beginning their businesses. Can you talk mm -hmm. about your process going through that and figuring out what to delegate and how to delegate? Yeah, I think it's a shift that you have to make as a business owner because early on when you have no money and you have no revenue and you have no business, you have to do everything. More often than not, the people who are too damn early in their journey are trying to make processes and delegate and think about the systems and build the business plan. No, you go out and you sell and you make money and you get after it. That's what we did for three years. I was driving the box trucks. I was a terrible delegator at the beginning. Now, once you do that, and so half the people are not willing to actually do the early work. They want to delegate it. They want to have no job. They want to work three hours a week. They're not willing to do what it takes to actually get a business off the ground. Then there comes a point where, okay, I've got 10 employees, three to $5 million in revenue. I've got a good business here. I got a business here that I know the business model is really good. That's another big problem. Most entrepreneurs go after shady business models, a business model that yep. one out of a hundred people who try that business model get rich. Okay. Period. There's just, just so a shiny people. object. Yep. Yeah. You think, oh my God, I want to do the next big thing. I go after the next big thing. I look at it and say, okay, what business can I get in where half the people are rich? Okay. What business half the people are rich? It's real estate. <laughs> what yeah. business? Half the people are super wealthy. What business where the top 10% are stupid wealthy? It's real estate. Okay, that's probably a darn good business. Let's go there. Now, when I'm growing and when I learned, when I was at a point where, okay, we learned that this is a really good business. We don't have to be brilliant to make a lot of money doing real estate. Um, not saying it's not hard and not saying I don't have to make really hard decisions all the time. We'll talk about some of the struggles that we're going through now before this is over, I'm sure. But then I shifted and I said, okay, if I'm doing something in my business, it's a problem. My job is to make sure all 50 employees are doing their jobs. And if emails came to me that required my action, I changed that and I made that job somebody else's job. And it's been the only way that we could really grow as fast as we did. Because if I had a task in my job where I had to do it, I would have no life, A, and a lot of stuff in my business would start and stop with me. If every banker knew Nick Huber's cell phone number, and we have loans with 12 different banks now, I would never be able to play around to golf without getting a call from a banker. If every contractor who was doing work at one of my properties had Nick Huber's cell phone number, that'd be a problem. If any of my tenants had my cell phone number, it'd be a problem. You just, so many people are so hard to, they struggle to let a couple things go inside the company. So what you're telling me is for that advertisement where I put the billboard with your cell phone number for this podcast, I need to take that down. I don't think anybody have any clue who I was, luckily. They'd be like, oh, that guy on Twitter who's a real jerk. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, man. But yeah, it's a point of conversation that keeps getting brought up on this show because a lot of people that listen to this have, they've grinded, they've done the work. We're the Action Academy podcast. So people on here take action. But then what ends up happening is they get so used to the idea of, I work my ass off. That means I make money. Therefore, if I work harder, I make more money. And then they build themselves into this golden cage and they build themselves into this freaking bottleneck that they can't work themselves out of because now they're wearing all these hats and now they have zero time, their marriage falls apart, they're an absent father, and their health is failing. Yep. So that's why I love getting the perspective like like you had there and like you have and you offer and you put on Twitter as well, 
because it gets ahead of the eight ball. It helps people to avoid making these problems like we all have before in our businesses where you're working 20 hours. Delegation is really hard. It's really uncomfortable. And there's only one way you can become a better delegator. And that's actually do it and get practice doing it. So many people listen to podcasts, they read self-help, they take these courses, they do all the things to learn about delegation. But until you put yourself out there and make the hire and get somebody working for you and go through the stress of that person messing up and go through the stress of that person quitting and go through the stress of that person costing you money, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah. And there's a term that Sam and Sean use and Cody Sanchez too, who I know you're friends with, uh, mental masturbation. It's And I know people that listen to this podcast, but you guys take action. For you listening, I know you're going to take action on this. But I want to use that as a little bit of a segue here as well, because you are famous slash infamous on Twitter because you keep going viral accidentally and getting in the wrong sides of Twitter where everyone's going to rip you apart about mm-hmm. your hiring processes. <laughs> yep. Yep. So you do things the best way that I think people should do and that I recommend to entrepreneurs is starting with the virtual assistants. That's a yep. hell of a way to learn delegation. Walk yep. us through that process and your whole battle with the society at large with your hires here. <laughs> Yeah. So we have 20 employees in the Philippines. They make anywhere from four to $500 a pay period, which is eight to $1,000 a month. And we hired them all through supportshepherd.com. Marshall over there is a great guy, but yeah, it's, it's a no brainer. These folks are competent. They're eager. They want to be there. They want to be at work. They're thankful for the job. They are kind to our customers. They're super competent when it comes to decision-making. So inside of our storage business, we have um, customer service, And this is not just customer service. This is renting units and guiding customers around our properties, telling them how to solve problems on the ground, arguably better than an American could, giving them street directions on how to get to a property, to collections, to underwriting, to back-end data entry. And yeah, when I made the first hire over there about 18 months ago, it really opened up. it unlocked a lot for us as a business. And we, when you go on support shepherd and you set up a ticket, they give you three candidates. They, you make a job description they help you with the job description. They'll go out and vet candidates and they'll bring in people who they think are perfect for the job. We hired all three of those candidates just because we were blown away by who and how they were and we were growing really fast. Wow. And we just kept kept going from there and it's been an amazing thing. But yeah, I think the... And things are changing now the other way. Like for the last five years, the employee in America has had all the leverage. And I think that's a great thing overall. I think it's great that an American worker can call the shots and they have the leverage. They're going to change jobs. They're going to be able to ask for raises. They're going to be able to ask for more time off. They're going to be able to ask for things because they're in high demand. I think that's an amazing thing. We still hire a lot of Americans. We support a ton of internal employees, but when that is the dynamic for so long, it's really hard on a business owner. It's really hard on a business owner. So to find and unlock a labor force that was eager and excited and not necessarily as quite as entitled, it was great for us. And it's a cheat code, especially in the service-based business, because you don't see that often. Mm-hmm. Being a ma- major bottleneck, and that's why I was interested in what you did. I have multiple virtual assistants myself. I went through like Upwork and doing them myself and having mm-hmm. to figure out how to tailor the titles and the job descriptions. So for you... Are, are there any differences between when you first started hiring the hiring virtual assistants versus or remote workers versus now that improvements that you've made throughout the process? Yeah, we've done Upwork and we've tried PH jobs, but you just get overwhelmed with the number of people. I think the Upwork yeah. is tough because those folks are kind of freelancers. They know what they can do. They know how to find more work. 
If you go through the PH jobs, you'll get overloaded with 150 resumes that you got to sort through and you're not necessarily sure how to interact with them, how to grade their English, do a lot of work to get the person right. So yeah, that's why we use Shepard. But I think the main takeaway is just you can afford to overhire a little bit and make yourself less stressed out. We've gotten virtual assistance for a lot of our people on the ground in the States, which is an unlock, like our construction manager, he's traveling a lot. He doesn't have time to be in his email all the time. He's meeting with contractors. He's got a super competent, basically administrative assistant in the background at all times. So if he needs something, he's sending messages on Slack. It's been, it's like, if you have a really competent employee in your company, tack on a $800 a month employee and watch it get even better. That's amazing. And I had another guest on that was talking about different grades of activities. And he was like, you have A grade, B grade, or C grade. A grade was like revenue producing. B grade was it's going to yield revenue production. And then the C grade was just like, what the hell am I doing? And so he hired that admin assistant like you're talking about. And he was like, I will give you a bonus. You can get 50% of my schedule more just of the revenue producing activities. And if you could take away everything else, I will pay you even more money. I love the concept and I love what you're doing. So let's go into let's go into your wealth building journey here. So you started with Storage Squad and your entire brand and everything that you preach is your sweaty startup on Twitter and that's your brand. Yep. So yep. talk about all about service-based businesses. Walk us back through your beginnings there and what got you into service-based businesses to begin. Yeah, I think the you ask you go on the street of any city in America and you start asking people what does entrepreneurship mean to you or what's the first thing that comes to your head when I say the word entrepreneur. They'll say things like Shark Tank, they'll say things like Steve Jobs, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates. They'll talk about these kind of unicorn events where somebody kind of has a story that's inspiring enough to draw media attention and draw like the allure of the dream, the entrepreneurship dream, like a lottery ticket. That's right. And, but when you go in your town and I don't live in necessarily a super wealthy neighborhood, but you go across town to the really wealthy neighborhood in my town, or you go to the country club in my town and you start asking people what they do. They'll say one of two things. They'll either say, I started a company or they'll say somebody in my family started a company that I work for. That's the super wealthy people in every single town. And then you start asking them, okay, what company is it? It's not really anything special. We just started buying shopping centers and releasing them out and fixing them up. And we had a unique way to do the business model. Or we started an HVAC company, or we started a plumbing company, or we started an electrical company, or we started yep. a lawn care, a landscaping company, or we own a distri- distribution building around town. And there's just any number of things that these people do to make massive wealth. And absolutely none of them are new ideas. Absolutely none of them are groundbreaking. And I, my story is the same. When we, started our comp- when we started our company, there were 20 other companies doing exactly what we were doing. We just did them all, took the way they did it and did it a little bit better and carved out a piece of the pie. People think, oh, if I'm going to start a company, I need to have no competition. I need to have the Blue Ocean book is the biggest scam that ever hit entrepreneurship in America that made you think, oh, I need to go into an area where there's no competition. It's a blue ocean instead of a red ocean, which is a lot of competition, people eating each other, whatever it might be. There's a lot of really good businesses that make really good money that operate with fax machines and don't know how to do business very well at all. And that's much, that's where I would prefer to compete personally. If I can choose to compete against the Stanford graduate or the venture backed company in New York city, or I can choose to compete against the person down the street in Athens, Georgia, who uses a fax machine, has a ninth grade education and doesn't have anything special. Who might, which one of those two people am I going to compete with? It's like saying, Nick, would you rather play basketball or football against the Georgia Bulldogs or the local high school? Yeah, exactly. 
Now you did start for your company, Storage Squad. Did you guys start that from scratch or did you buy an existing business and then fix it up? Yeah, we started from scratch. We learned a ton about logistics and hiring and delegation because we did student storage that did pickups all in one time a year and we had a lot going on. And then we just grew that and went from school to school. And before you know it, three to five years later, we were doing 2.5 million a year in revenue and clearing three to $500,000 and not spending any money. So we stayed very lean. And then by 2017, we had the cash set aside to build a self-storage facility. Actually, this was about 2015. 2017, we got that storage facility built and opened. And it became clear very quickly that we could make a lot more money in real estate. So we began pouring all of our proceeds from our service business into real estate. I moved out of the student storage business in 2017, full-time into the real estate. We bought another property in 2018. We bought three more in 2019. And then we sold our um, student storage business storage squad in January, 2021. And now me and my partner are full-time real estate. So walk us, So I want to get into the self-storage because we have a lot of self-storage guys on here. So I want to really dive into the numbers, what you're seeing in the market, what struggles you're having, because I know some of them that you've listed. But mm-hmm. I'm curious, going back to Nick in, in college and your friend, like, what the hell? What What switch was flipped to where you guys were like, oh, hey, we feel like doing storage here. Walk me through that thought process and getting this thing off the ground, especially as a college student, because you guys expanded to what, 25 locations, 25 schools? Yeah, I think the difference is that I was an energetic, excitable person. I try to like, okay, what is the difference between an entrepreneur that does it and gets a business going and one that does not? And 99 out of 100 people would not have been excited about the fact that somebody reached out to me after my Craigslist post said, Nick, can I store my stuff in your house? Most people would have taken that stuff, put it in their house, got the $300, went out and bought some beer and forgot all about it. I was excited and eager to go scrap and make some money. So we got after it and we got excited about it and we were going to build it and have a ton of fun. And it was a ton of work. And looking back, I would never be excited about starting that company because it was freaking hard. (laughs) But you're glad you did, man. Yeah. But you're glad you did. All right. So let's walk from the storage squad and then you guys sold for seven figures and then you started doing the real estate full time. So walk Mm -hmm. us through where you are today and then let's break through the acquisition of these units that you have right now. Yeah. So we bought, we now own 59 self-storage facilities, 1.7 million square feet of storage. We've deployed over a hundred million to acquire all those assets. We've raised net operating income significantly. The portfolio before the recent crash was, we probably could have sold our entire portfolio and put 10 or $20 million each in my partner and I's pocket. That's all changing quickly now. But yeah, our plan is generally buy a self-storage facility that's mismanaged, um, raise rents to wherever the market takes rents, lease more units, have a Google My Business location, answer the phone, run a decent set of software, buy it for a million bucks, increase net operating income. And then it's worth 2 million bucks or it's worth 1.5. You refinance it or you sell it and you hold it. And that's how you make money in my business. Yeah, we started raising money. I got on Twitter, started tweeting about my deals, met a lot of people with cash, ended up raising a lot of investor capital. We syndicate. So that means we kind of raise a limited partner capital, a silent partner, and then we get a chunk of the upside and we co-invest some of our money as well. And we started going really well. And there, and I think real estate's really cyclical and there's small windows in time. I, I say that real estate's kind of like hunting and imagine you're a lion and you're out in the desert or the jungle, wherever you're hunting. And most of the time you're laying on a rock. You're just laying there. But sometimes you see a gazelle out in the field and you got to go get off your rock and you got to sprint and you got to chase it down and you got to get it. We saw a window in time from 2019 to 2021 where it was a really good opportunity to buy a lot of storage. So we stressed ourselves out. We worked like crazy and we bought a ton of properties. 
and they were great assets and they're doing really well now. And frankly, we made a lot of money doing that over the last two years. Now, everything's changing. Interest rates have went way up. The economy is changing drastically and we're seeing less people move into units. Our occupancy is decreasing. Street rates are dropping. And frankly, if we weren't good operators or we didn't go in low leverage with low debt on our buildings that we bought, we'd be really nervous right now because it's pretty crazy time. Talk me through your debt strategies here because it's great that you did what you did, but I know that's not normally the status quo when it comes to self-storage acquisition. You see a lot of seller finance, low to no money down, kind of interest-only payments. How did you structure your debt terms and what was your debt strategy going into this? We knew that we had made enough money in our lives that we didn't want to keep pushing it all back on the table and risk Mm. it And I think this is another thing about real estate is it's an addictive game. Doing a deal is addictive. It feels like you're at the casino and you can buy it for X and then it's worth Y and you can make shitloads of money and you just get addicted to that thrill of the chase. And so many investors were worth hundreds of millions of dollars before they went totally broke in 2008 during the last recession. How can you explain that, Brian? How can we explain that somebody had more money than them and their kids could ever spend living reasonable lives and they still found a way to put enough risk on the table to go broke during the last real estate recession. How does that make any sense? It's pretty darn easy when when times are good to just keep going and going and going and assume that they're gonna keep being good. So we raised a lot of more equity than we were comfortable with. We took just de-risked. Frankly, we had made a lot of money and we were ready to not risk it. Really lucky we did that. So when you're positioning, like what percent equity are you looking for whenever you're taking down a deal? It kept dropping. Early, when the deals were really good in 2018, 19, 20, we were fine to use 70, 80% leverage because we knew that they were really underpriced. And frankly, we didn't have as much to lose then. Now, sure. beginning of last year, we, were, we went down to 60% leverage. Now, for the past nine months, we bought everything with 50% leverage and 50% cash, partly because we were really good at raising equity for, through Twitter and through all of our network. We have 300 LPs and 1200 on our email list. But yeah, we're lucky. All right. So I love your strategy now and how you're going about it because I see that in multifamily as well with a lot of the guests that are coming on here. They're doing like a 40% equity and 40% cash down when it comes to their properties to even make the rates work because of how high the interest rates are. So I want to, I would be remiss if I didn't take you on a pivot to Twitter. Because mm-hmm. is Twitter the one that you're most successful on? Because I know you've got YouTube and everything else. I'd say just... Twitter's top of funnel. Like Twitter is where I get the most eyeballs. And then people watch my YouTube video or listen to me on a podcast and they get to know me a little bit more. Then they get on my email newsletter and they really see how I think. And then it's a, it, but Twitter, yeah, is definitely the most successful as far as eyeballs go. It's uh, you know, 20 million impressions a month. Okay, perfect. Walk us through your content strategy because what I've tried to tell people is that there's such a missed opportunity, especially for operators just like yourself, where they're operating with these businesses that aren't necessarily sexy, but there's a place for them online and they can use that to leverage and scale. And that's one of the reasons I do this podcast. And the reason mm-hmm. that I'm on Twitter, I we're having this conversation because of Twitter. So yep. walk us through the creation of that account and how you maneuver and think about what you put up and how mm-hmm. you format it before we get into the rest of the numbers here. Because now a lot of your LPs are directly a result of your Twitter. So it's a productive activity. Yeah. My life changed when I got about 5,000 followers. The rest was just icing on the cake. So it really didn't take much at the very beginning to get the initial follower slug or to get like a life-changing influence within the real estate community on Twitter. And I think the main difference between me and every other content creator is that when you talk about real estate, aside from the bigger pockets crowd and some of the other stuff, like 
for the most part, the people who make real money in commercial real estate, they don't talk about it. They don't post pictures of their profit and loss statement on social media. They don't talk about how they're making millions of dollars. And I came on Twitter slinging and posting profit and loss statements and just showing people how or what we were doing to make millions of dollars in real time. And anybody who's followed me for two years on Twitter has seen all that happen. And when you're out doing something interesting, it's really easy to get followers on social media. Everybody wants to get the followers before they do something interesting. Nobody yeah. gives a shit. About, <laughs> nobody gives a shit about you if you're not doing something interesting. It's like social media is a very selfish. Like, I'm going to follow somebody. I'm going to follow somebody because they're going to make me better, or they're going to show me something, teach me something. So yeah, we were out building a real estate private equity company. We were hiring a ton of employees, and we were buying fifty million dollars worth of self storage over a twelve month period. And I was just tweeting all about it, and that made me an interesting follow. I think I love that you said that because I think people have everything backwards to where they're trying to pull everything out of thin air. They're like, oh, here's 10 takeaways from this person. Here's 10 takeaways from that person. But they're not actually doing anything. They're just trying to build an audience, but they're not doing anything. So it's like Sam has this quote where he's do interesting shit. It goes and document it. Just document what you're building, document what you're doing. And then that's what builds the audience. And it's like, I just went and traveled around the world for five months, quit corporate America. And now I'm traveling and I documented it. So that's why I was able to grow mine. So it's, I just love reinforcing this idea over and over again about this for people that are listening. Cause there's so many entrepreneurs listening to this that are at that seven figure mark. Maybe they're at like 6 million, 7 million, $8 million net worth. And just simply documenting what the hell you guys are doing will get you into that eight-figure mark. Walk me through that funnel that you just talked about. So you mm -hmm. said Twitter is essentially the top of your funnel. And then what's the yep. rest of the, your funnel? Yeah. So let's even look at Twitter as a follow. Let's look sure. at Twitter. Let's just start. Let's only Twitter. 60, 50% of my posts are not about self-storage or not about entrepreneurship, or not about business. They are life, self-help, money-making, thoughts, and philosophies. That's the, everybody's Nick, you got 250,000 followers on Twitter by tweeting about self-storage. Give me a break. I, no, I did not get all those followers just by tweeting about self-storage. My goal on Twitter is always to do, in, to tweet something that will make interesting people or smart people think about something a little bit harder. Every tweet. Think, make smart people think a little bit harder about something, whether it's business, making money, self-storage, whatever it might be. So the top of my funnel is the self-help business tweets. Then you go a little bit deeper and you talk about, Threads, like the deeper threads on, okay, how you think about making money, how you think about risk, how you think about life. Then below that, there's the self-storage tweets that are talking about our portfolio, self-storage in general, simplifying concepts around real estate. And then at the very bottom, there's the complex shit that 99% of people on Twitter don't understand. That is me posting how a cash out refinance worked on one of our deals with pictures of our profit and loss statements. Like, so Twitter itself is a bigger funnel where I'm going to get the most I might only get 150 likes on that thread that I do about my Erie, Pennsylvania self-storage portfolio that I bought and how we raised rents and made the property better and improved it and made occupancy better and ended up making $900,000. And you can't even really tell that I made $900,000 unless you know what a cap rate is and how we refinanced it. But those 100 likes on that one tweet are from the people that I'm after on Twitter. Does that make sense? Like, I don't care Absolutely. about the, I don't care about the 5,000 people that like my tweet tweeting some engagement thing about hiring people in the Philippines. I don't really care. Those people are not high value. They don't care about Nick Huber. The people that read my thread with only 100 likes on what we did on one property and something we struggled with or something we built or something very interesting or unique, those are the really valuable people on Twitter that end up building relationships with me in the DMs.
So it, it's almost like a two-pronged approach. Like you want to get the eyeballs and then you want to provide substance for whenever one of those eyeballs happens to be a high va- a value set of eyeballs. 100%. And you got it right on money. Okay, perfect. Yeah. And that's a mistake that I've made sometimes because I go too general and then all of a sudden I spit out something like super specific and then it gets like nothing. It's like... We, Don't give up we, on the specific we, stuff. Don't give yeah. up on it. Because you, you almost get frustrated because then you'll make this thread and then it's just, oh, okay, let me go super in depth into detail about how I did all of this. But then what I'm also learning is like the art of it. Like there's, there's the science of it and then there's the art of it where it's just, hey, like you're hooking. That's why people yep. aren't listening and it's too much information. You need to format it like this. Yeah. Um, you got to be really good at writing copy Yeah, all the time, no matter what you write. And most people suck at writing good copy that's engaging. And then you also have to be doing interesting shit. There you go. There's the formula, everybody, right there. Follow that formula and go get to work. And it's about the consistency. Just a general, one last comment on Twitter. I think there's a lot of, Twitter is candy for your brain, period. Instagram is candy for your eyes. Twitter is candy for your brain. So the business people hang out on Twitter. They get news there. They follow financial accounts. They follow smart people. They know they can get smarter on Twitter if they follow the right people. So there's tons of people with, NFT profile pictures and six followers that are worth tens of millions of dollars. And they do deals on Twitter. They meet people on Twitter. They lurk on Twitter. Just understand that Twitter is where deal makers hang out. There's a lot of really valuable people there. Whereas I did work on Reddit for a year and a half and I met exactly zero people who did anything with their lives on Reddit. <laughs> that make, the, the math checks out. I have to ask. I have to ask. I was going to move on, but I got to oh, ask, good. what are your opinions on Elon and Twitter right now? Because he's just going off. I love it. The idiots are so mad at him because he's going to do a masterclass on how to make a business that has been worthless for 20 years. Twitter has Losing been a, money. Twitter has been worthless from a business standpoint for so long. And he's about to make a shitload of money and it's going to be awesome. He'll go public again and make billions of dollars. And, and the base who don't actually do anything at all, the office going on the news and talking about how they were mistreated unfairly, get the hell out of here. I love it. I love it. So now we are getting into the business. So you put another thread out there that I really liked about how you started and operated your first business. You did a bunch of stuff wrong. Like you said, it was super hard, super difficult. But the three things that you got right, and you said, these are the three things that you need to get right in business. And that's operations, the asset class and getting your projections right. Can you dive a little bit deeper into this? I'll say that our projections were way off on that first one, but we were. <laughs> All right, hang it up, everybody. <laughs> no, I think in, in real estate, there's, this is the thing about real estate. The folks need to understand, like there's a thousand variables in any real estate deal. No real estate deal is the same. And there's, everybody's, Nick, how do you know if you have a good real estate deal? Is it square foot per capita? Is it the amount of renters? Is it average income? Is it, the amount, the population in five miles, is it traffic count? Is it the quality of the asset? Is it all these different things that you got to look at to try to predict how well a, a property is going to do? And it's really hard to guess which ones are going to matter. But if you get a couple of the ones, if you get a couple of them right and you get the big ones right, hey, where can I take revenue? Is revenue a month right here? And where can I take it? If you can get that, you're going to, you're going to be fine. So yeah, you can, it's very easy to get in the weeds. And I know this is probably just confusing the hell out of people, but there's a ton. Oh, no. There's a ton of nuance around this stuff, and there's no real way to have all the answers. There's no way to have all the answers when you do a real estate deal. People are asking me all the time, Nick, what's I'm about to buy a storage facility, and they'll write a paragraph on their property that they're about to buy. Do you think it's a good deal? And I'm always like, Holy shit, man! We need to talk for half an hour for me to know if it's truly a good deal. But if you tell me the revenue per month and what you're paying for it, I can get pretty darn close. 
Yeah, there was a one of my buddies is a massive. Do you know Chris Benson? I've recognized the name. Is he on Twitter? He's not on Twitter, but he's reliant self storage. Okay. Yeah, so he does self storage. He's a, he's another self storage syndicator in Georgia. So he's in one of my mastermind groups, and so he was talking about how when he was like presenting to a group and he was, had this like concept like swag. He like wrote swag, and we we're like. Chris, what's swag in your projections? And he was like, oh, that's scientific wild-ass guess. Is we can't be able to tell because he, like you, is like, all right, so we can forecast and predict to the best of our ability through our decades of market knowledge. He's like, but we can't forecast everything. You so can't what forecast he, interest rates. You can't forecast interest yeah. rates going from 3.5% to 7.5%. And you can't forecast twice as many people up half as many people renting storage units month over month because no houses are selling. You can't forecast the REITs now dropping street rates significantly for the first time in five years. Delinquency doubling. You can't forecast that stuff. This is all happening right now. You asked me six months ago, is self-storage an asset class where we could see distressed sales, meaning like foreclosures and bankruptcies? I'd say no. I don't don't think so. I think it's too good of an asset class for people to go wrong with. I've totally flip-flopped on that opinion. And I think that some people who bought real estate, bought self-storage, especially people who bought it on 90% leverage with an SBA loan, they're going to be in big trouble. So you put in another one of your quotes that I really liked is how you think about investor capital and how you think about managing your deals. You're not trying to give people this insane IRR and you're not talking about, oh, here's all the upside that I'm going to give you. It's going to be the sexiest thing ever. What you care about is, hey, here's every possible way that this deal can go wrong yep. and go sideways. Mm-hmm. Here's how I'm going to mitigate your risk through my operational prowess. And I yep. love that. Can you talk about some ways that you're, some levers that you're pulling to stabilize these properties and mitigate the downside risk going into this next environment? Yeah, I'm of the opinion that the old sales method of, hey, this is these are all the reasons why we should do this deal. These are the things you're going to love. This is why I'm so great. This is amazing. When I get on a call with an investor, my instinct is to do that, to sell myself. I'm a good salesman. I want to tell them all the ways that we're phenomenal. Why we've been able to have success is because I get on an investor call with a high net worth individual and I say, hey, how would you feel if interest rates went to the moon? How would you feel if we missed all these projections for five years? How would you feel if we went through a severe real estate recession and instead of a three-year time frame or a five-year time frame, this turns into a 10-year deal and you can't get your money out and it's stuck with me? How would you feel about that? And then I say, okay. And then I say, okay, they want to talk about, and then they start selling themselves on the deal and saying, okay, we don't need the cash. They start resetting expectations. They're resetting their expectations. And in my opinion, stress in the real estate business, stress in anywhere area of life is misaligned expectations. If you tell somebody you're going to be here and you actually are here, you're going to be stressed. If you tell somebody you're going to be here and you're right here, guess what? You're not stressed. Mm -hmm. So the bottom line is that investors don't pay me the big bucks and my fees are high and we take a good chunk of the upside, they don't pay me the big bucks to be a bull and buy everything and just let the tailwinds of self-storage carry. They pay me the big bucks to protect the risk and make sure I don't lose any properties. I love it. And you, yeah, and you make sure that they don't lose any freaking money. What are you doing with your operations? Obviously, besides how you're acquiring the properties and how you're structuring your debt, is there anything in particular that you're doing to make sure that this is mitigated from an operational standpoint? Because a lot of people that are listening to this own self-storage. Yeah, I think if you just own one self-storage facility and you're the one managing it, if you care about the property and you answer the phone, you're going to be fine. Um, At my level, when you're syndicating deals and you're raising a lot of outside capital, 
we made sure that we had a fee structure so that I could support my employees and we could pay good people to run our company, even if deals dried up. And that's going to be something that's very surprising in this cycle is that even if you don't lose any buildings, and even if your loans aren't expiring, if you were running a real estate private equity shop with 12 employees and you only have $300,000 of management fees coming in, tell me how that's sustainable for five years. It's not. Yeah. So people are undercharging, drastically undercharging for management fees, especially of self-storage because it's really involved. There's a lot of work to manage self-storage facilities. The REITs, you're going to pay CubeSmart or ExoSpace towards 12, 13, 15% of revenue to manage an asset for you. You're going to pay me 10, 12, 13% of revenue to manage a self-storage asset for me or for you. A lot of these people who are buying self-storage with investors are charging 5%. And it's not nearly enough to pay good people to manage the properties. And so when you stop doing deals and you stop getting acquisition fees and you stop getting refinance fees and you stop getting liquidations of selling an asset or cash out refis or these big liquidity slugs, when those stop coming in a really hard period and we got to go... Let's say the next time rates drop down to where we can have some liquidity events is 2024, 2025, 2026. Um, real estate shops go hungry and it gets really hard if you don't have the correct amount of fees to, to manage your property. So that's one thing I would say as a takeaway. I love that. And for people listening, that's something that you can apply right now. Go back, go back, look at your business, look at what you can cut, look at what you can increase. And you can do that right now because the, right now is the time to do it before everything starts getting even wilder. Because right now we're in the very beginning stages of this. And I think that this can go over into the next 24 months and ongoing. So <clears throat> on that point, what is your strategy? What's your plan and vision moving forward over these next yep. couple of years? To the best of your ability, obviously you don't have a freaking crystal ball, but what's your plan? What's the sweaty startup prediction and plan? Yeah, I think when times are good, we make money. When times are bad, we acquire great properties. Bam. So I've, I've come to the conclusion that, okay, we're not going to make big chunks of money when we can't refinance or sell properties. That's just not going to happen. But we can go in and we can do the work and we can buy properties that five years later will provide that opportunity. Yeah. I think the plan, I don't know what's going to happen. And again, if you're just getting started in your real estate journey, the problem with getting a lot of advice from guys like me is that when you make your money, and you put your net worth in and you're all of a sudden have a portfolio of self-storage worth almost $200 million, your risk tolerance changes. You shift from, okay, I need to make money to, okay, I need to not lose money. The mm -hmm. problem is a lot of folks who are very early on in their journey go around to really rich people and get advice. Hey, I'm just starting out. I don't have any money. What would you do? Um, I don't know. I've had money for a really freaking long time. So what I'm about to tell you is not at all applicable to what you should actually do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had that problem on the podcast sometimes where I was like, okay, I've had too many $100 million guys back to back. And I'm like, all right, let me bring it back down to the truth. No, if, I, if I was just getting out of college, if I was just getting out of college and I didn't have two kids and a mortgage and a big net worth to protect, I would be very bullish and I'd be out mixing it up and I'd be getting after it and we wouldn't be afraid to buy properties. And I hope this comes off as I hope I don't I'm not coming off as a complete arrogant asshole here. I'm just saying it's very hard to be what do you say laissez faire like cavalier yeah. when you have something to lose. No, there, it's a great point to make because there was a quote somewhere where it was like why would I risk what I do have for something that I don't do have a need for something that I don't need. Like I'm already good. So why would I risk a good thing for the possibility of something that 
isn't even going to marginally increase the quality of my life anymore. Yep. So if, if I had to predict what's going to happen, realistically, I think maybe three or four months ago, I'd say a 20% chance the real estate market melts down to a really bad recession. Now, I think maybe it's 35% that the real estate market melts down to a really bad recession. If I was a gambling man, I had to say, what would Vegas odds be on this? But I'm focused on not letting that 35% tail event ruin me. Whereas there's a 65% chance that things just keep rocking and rolling. And if we don't see a recession that's real estate led and the Fed does reduce and interest rates go back to 5% and we can all make money for a while and it just goes back a little bit closer to normal. But if interest rates stay right here, up near seven to seven and a half percent, if it stays here for two or three years, we will have carnage in the real estate market, complete carnage. And that's why, frankly, we are not buying anything right now. I, I over the past 18 months from late 2020 to April of this year, that 18 month period, we bought $75 million worth of storage. And the four month period, this time last year, the end of 2021 to the beginning of 2022, we bought about $40 million worth of storage over a four month period. That same time frame this year, we're going to do one deal worth $1.65 million. One wow. deal. So we're doing 90% less volume right now than we were last year. Every developer that I'm talking to, and let's put it in context, it's November 8th, it's election day, 2022, right now, if you're listening to this in the future. So you'll get to see whether or not I was an idiot or whether or not we were smart, we don't know, but we are not doing any deals right now because I don't think any of the pricing, the sellers are not aligned with the buyers and what market price is right now. Got it. Now it makes a lot of sense, but I like what you're doing where you're operationally like your boots on the ground. You're like, okay, cool. Let's mitigate here. And that's what a lot of people that are coming on the show and they're talking about, especially with their multifamily and with all the different asset classes, like they're hunkering down, they're cutting down the, like they're cutting loose the dogs of their portfolio, their C-class stuff, they're selling it, they're 1031ing it into different, something else. So they're, everyone's taking like defensive measures, but it also goes back to like your reticular activating system. Like you're always going to see what you want to see and what you're focused on. So six months ago, you were six months ago, those assets were trading. They're not trading now. Yeah. Today, Tuesday, November 8th, we're still closing a couple of deals that went under contract three, four months ago and somebody had locked debt on. But I'd say over the last month, we've seen five $20 million plus portfolios go out to the market that did not sell, did not sell. Wow. We've seen transaction volume and self-storage is probably 10% what it was last year, this quarter. Nothing wow. selling, like brokers are listing shit. They're calling me saying, Nick, this is probably not going to sell. We told the guy $5 million. Can you get anywhere near that? I'll say, nope. And he'll be like, all right. <laughs> if you're not distressed, if the asset's not distressed and you're not ready to take a big loss, you are not selling right now. Got it. So it's getting, it's getting a little dicey out there. We just got to keep navigating. I'm still bullish though over time and we're ready to start buying soon. I'm, I know the opportunities will start to come. And I would guess if I had to predict that 2023 will hopefully be another $50 million year of acquisitions for us. There we They're go. Just gonna be at a, we're just going to buy a lot more square footage for that money. Love it, brother. I appreciate you coming on, man. Where can people find you? Follow me on Twitter at Sweaty Startup. I release a weekly newsletter where you get a lot of in-depth thoughts on my life, my business, our self-storage, and how I think about real estate. And that you can sign up for that at sweatystartup.page. So love it. Actually, it's just sweatystartup.com too. There we go. Sweatystartup.com, sweaty startup on Twitter. Nick, appreciate you coming on, brother. Brian, thanks for having me, buddy. Really appreciate it. Anytime, man. And with that, that has been Nick Huber and Brian Lubin with the Action Academy podcast signing off. 
Hey, real quick. If you're still listening to today's episode, I'm assuming you got value from it. So I need your help specifically. My two-year vision with this show is to help over 1 million people do what they want, when they want, with who they want. And I can only do that with your help. There are two main ways that a podcast grows. One is through ratings and reviews, and the other is word of mouth. If you could please leave me a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as well as send this to one or two friends that you think would get value from it, we can reach the people that we're looking to reach. Thanks in advance. Talk tomorrow.